You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and as usual I have an array of wonderful guests to introduce you to this evening. I will be talking to cheesemaker Tom Burgess about his award-winning cheddar and Tom is from the Culatin Cheddar Company. They're based in County Carlow. I'm out and about and meet Michelle Lestis at her new store in Belfast. That's the Good Food and Wine Company. Cookbook author and food writer Trish Dezane will be on the phone to tell us all about her new book, which is called Home Recipes from Ireland. And then Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley has a delicious recipe to share with us. So Pen's ready to write down the details of that. I would tell you what it is, but I actually can't pronounce the name that she sent to me earlier on today. So we will leave that up to Karen to unveil later on in the programme. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, please feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. So without further delay, let's hear from the first guest of the show, Tom Burgess from Coulat and Cheese in County Carlow, whose cheese was named as the All-Ireland Cheese Champion a couple of weeks ago at Ballymaloo. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Tom, congratulations on your All-Ireland Cheese win. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to get it. It's great news. Now, it's a new product to the market, or fairly new cheese to the market, that won at Mount Leinster Clothbound. Yes, that's correct. Yes, we had been making Kulak and Cheddar for the last 10 years, which is a raw milk cheddar made from our own cow's milk during the summer months when they're eating grass. And uh, a couple of years ago, we had some uh, questions, queries about it. it my Latin cheddar is a red, bright red rind on it. It's an artificial colour from uh, cheese coat, which I buy in from Holland. They use it on Gouda over there. But some people wanted a more natural uh, rind and the traditional way of, of coating cheddar, raw milk cheddar, uh, farmhouse cheddar, is with a cloth bandage, a heavy cotton bandage. It supports it during the time that it's maturing and it kind of keeps it together well. And as it turns out, uh, it looks to be doing the trick for me. It has an effect on the flavour, does it? Well, it it seems to have. You know, I never really believed it, but I have made now that I've used it on my cheddar and uh, it has turned out very well. When it reaches the customer then, how is it packaged? Does it still have some of this cloth on it? Uh, well, it's, it can be, yes. I sell most of my cheese to cheesemongers and farmers markets as cheese stalls, and they cut it in front of the customer, so they will see the cloth on it. Obviously, the cloth is not edible, and it's, take, you know, it's taken away, but the rind underneath is, and the cheese itself is, is very nice. You, know? you said that you use raw milk. Yes. Just explain what exactly that is. Well, most uh, dairy products are made from pasteurised milk because they're collected from a farm and they're processed and they're, they're stored for a couple of days or longer and they, the bacteria have time to build up in them and, and may cause danger. But my milk is made directly from the milking parlour into the cheese vat. So it's still warm from the cows and when the starter goes in, when the process begins. And because of that, there's, there's no bacteria build up and it's a safe product. It goes through the cheese making process, which is a traditional form of uh, storage of milk. Uh, there's various different reasons why bacteria will not grow in, in cheddar. Uh, it's dried out, it's, it's acidified, and salt is added at the end. And for all these reasons, bacteria won't, don't survive in it. It's also stored for uh, a year, and matured for a year at a room temperature, at 12 degrees centigrade. So in that time, the bacteria will all die and the, the proteins will break down into amino acids and polypeptides and, and the flavours are created from this maturing process. I think a lot of people don't really appreciate that a lot of cheesemakers aren't actually farming their own herd of cows as well because you're fairly unique in that regard. Yeah, there isn't many. There is a few, but there's, there's not a lot of them. Uh, making it for directly from their own cow's milk. And I believe that's, that's really, uh, it should be the definition of farmhouse cheddar. 
And you said it is during the summer, it's the milk during the summer that you use for yeah, this particular yeah, cheese. We start in June and we stop in September. And that's when the cows are eating grass, freshly growing grass, and nothing else in their diet. And it's also the milk that from the morning milking that you use as well. Yeah, yeah that's correct. We, we actually milk our cows once a day. We don't milk them. They don't get milked in the evening. So there's a long break in between milkings. And this has the same effect as using early morning milk. The longer break allows certain uh, hormones and, and proteins build up to a higher level in it and makes it a special milk. There are some, some people making uh, 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 early morning, using early morning milk to sell as uh, lullaby milk. That's uh, because the melatonin is, is higher, is found to be at a higher level and it helps you sleep better. Yeah, that's what we want to be given to our kids last thing at night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to encourage them to sleep through. Yeah, yeah. So and there's other there's other reasons why uh, once a day milk is better too. You know, there's there's other ferritin, ferritonin is a higher level in as well. So there's quite a lot there that hasn't actually been gone into properly scientifically, but there is, I believe, very good uh, real reasons why once a day milk is healthier. Now you and, and because it's not pasteurised, these these things are not broken down by heat. Now you were one of thirty six Irish cheese makers that were honoured at the Irish Cheese Awards there a few weeks ago, and um, yeah. there was a number of your peers there. So you must have felt very proud that you won the All Ireland Cheese Champion. I certainly was. Yes, it was last Wednesday night, and it was a, a, a great occasion. Ballymaloe House really laid out a spread for us. And my, when I was asked to speak, that was my words to everybody else was to be judged against my peers or the other cheesemakers and come out on top was really made me very proud amongst a great group of people. You're part of Kosh, which is uh, it's kind of a collection of cheesemakers in yeah. Ireland. Yeah. And you're the raw milk cheese rep. So what does that involve? Oh, it's quite, that's true, yes. I'm on the raw milk uh, subcommittee, chairman of the raw milk subcommittee of Kosh. It's because a lot of the Kosh members don't use raw milk, they pasteurise their milk. And we felt we needed um, more representation from raw milk uh, processors in, and to, to represent ourselves in over, over certain subjects with the FSAI and with other, other people, you know. In fact, we needed a voice of, 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 of our own, an interested voice, somebody who was actually processing raw milk to, you know, look after their issues. And Kosh is nearly like, it's like an industry body of the, all the cheesemakers in Ireland. Yes, that's right. All, all the small cheesemakers in Ireland are, are in Kosh, are, are, you know, welcome to enter, to be part of Kosh. It is our lobbying group, and it also carries out good work with marketing with the help of Board Bia. They're a great help, and they did a lot for that, the awards. Well, let's talk a bit about some of the other winners on the night, and yeah. we'll start with Ardsala Cranberry by yeah. Ardsala Goats Products. That's a lovely goat cheese, a lovely soft goat's log with, um, with cranberry flavour in it, made by Jane Murphy. It's delicious in salads, and it's delicious to, uh, for uh, Good, a good uh, Christmas dish as well. And another cheese that we featured here on the show is the McCroom Buffalo Mozzarella. Yes, that's a new a new one from McCroom. There is actually a herd of buffaloes down there on the farm and they're using their milk to make mozzarella, which is the traditional way of making mozzarella in Italy. But um, and it, it's a lovely mozzarella, you know, you, but you get it in a white bowl. It's a fresh and it's in, in brine and it's nice soft to eat and spreads beautifully yeah and they're the only milking herd of buffalo in Ireland I believe yes of course yeah yeah. and this year at the Irish Cheese Awards it was the first time that they'd ever had a lifetime achievement award yes Veronica Steele was given the lifetime achievement award she's been making cheese since 1970 I believe out in West Cork with her husband Norman and I've I've stood beside her at, at a Cardiff uh, in the British Cheese Awards there promoting her cheese and she was great fun and really enjoyable day with her there about four or five years ago. That way back 30 years ago there was a television programme made about their cheese making uh, in their in their farmhouse and how they had moved down from Dublin to, to live the good life in West Cork and kept cows, their own cows and made, che- milk, made cheese out of the cow's milk and it was a, lo- a lovely programme, they showed some of it an excerpt from it 
on the night. And I believe Veronica has always been very supportive of new cheesemakers coming along. Like she's always yeah. really helped and tutored and mentored them. Yeah, she has. She's always good for advice if you needed, needed some help. And because there is quite a lot to making cheese, you know, and it's, it's great that cheesemakers do help each other out and, and give each other advice. Where did you yourself learn the craft? Well, we actually Bill Hogan gave uh, another Irish famous Irish cheesemaker from West Cork. Uh, he gave us a, a class there about twelve years ago in Kilkenny, and Helen Finnegan and Elizabeth Bradley and myself went to that class, and we all have, are still making cheese and still still working away at it. He was our inspiration at the time. That was the first, and then any other uh, any other. Uh, classes that were going on um, Moor Park, Chagas Moor Park and in conjunction with UCC put on three or four different uh, short courses for cheese makers which I took I also have a BAG science from my earlier years which from UCD which um, was there was a lot of food science involved in that course in these current challenging times for the agriculture industry, if somebody is out there and they are firm, they are farming cows at the moment, dairy cows, yeah. what advice would you give to them? Would you recommend that they consider cheese making as a, a, a possible new string to their bow? Yes, well, I would say that the Irish cows that are eating grass produce the best milk in the world for the best dairy products, uh, including cheese. And they, if they want to try something different, if they're of that persuasion, then I think they can find a product that will sell and will sell in the world market as well. You know, if we're allowed, we can take advantage of our grass-based milk production. It's, it's quite unique. And it, it, is, it is appreciated worldwide as well. Well, Tom, thanks so much for telling us your story tonight. Congratulations on the win. I'm sure it'll be the first of many. You'll be entering it in lots more awards next year, I would imagine. Thank you, Thank you very much. It's been happy to talk to you. Thank you to Kosh and Board B and all our sponsors in the Irish Cheese Awards and Ballymaloe House who put on a lovely spread. Fantastic. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Tom and, of course, many congratulations again on his award-winning cheese. Still to come tonight, cookbook author and food writer Trish Dezean will be on the phone to tell us all about her new book, Home Recipes from Ireland. And Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley has a delicious recipe to share with us, so pen's ready to write down the details of that. And as I said before, i tell you what it is if I could pronounce the name of it. Next, though, I'm delighted to take you out and about on my travels, and this week it's all the way up to Belfast. When I was in the north for a few days at Halloween, I did some recordings for a radio documentary I'm working on. Details about that to be revealed in the new year. When I was in the north recording, I met Michelle Lestis from the Good Food and Wine Company in Belfast. So let's have a listen to what she told me. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Michelle, it's lovely to be here in Belfast city centre in your lovely premises, the Good Food and Wine Company, but you actually sell online as well. We do, we do. We have a number of outlet, uh, outlets actually. We do. We started off on the wholesale side of the business three years ago where we would produce products and then we would sell them wholesale to other outlets. Our first product we ever sold went into Harrods. So we started high, we aimed high. Probably very difficult on reflection, but that's what we did. And then we moved to the online sales on the back of the wholesale sales. And that brings in a reasonable amount of income into the business. Uh, We get some interesting sales from all over uh, the world in many cases. Um, We distribute mostly, our furthest is Europe. We did a little bit into Canada last year. But it's mainly Europe, uh, UK and Ireland. And then six months ago, we decided to have a retail outlet, which is why we are sitting in Queen's Arcade in centre Belfast. Tell us a bit about the product portfolio, because it is very extensive, but all the products have Irishness to them. Well, our whole emphasis is on local food, traditional recipes, modernising traditional recipes, and bringing those recipes into products that people will want today from all age groups. We have all age groups in here buying our products from teenagers 
through to a sort of cradle to grave, really. Um, so we try to uh, deal with that in the types of products that we bring in. We have a research and development kitchen which is based in Balamoli, which is state of the art. We opened that up last October and that was prior to the retail. We needed that in order to be able to push more products through to be able to get the retail side set up. Um, so we would do all our recipe development there and then some we produce in-house in that kitchen. Some we, uh, and quite a lot, we subcontract out to some of our local farmers and producers, all to our recipes. So a recipe can be a long time in the making because not only are you looking at the traditional recipe that maybe our mothers would have used, then you have to try and commercialise that. You have to make it into quantities that are acceptable in terms of consistently uh, supporting the retail outlet, the wholesale side and the online sales. You have a number of award-winning products. Tell us about some of those. Um, well, part and parcel of our ethos was always to look at the quality of the food. Good quality at a good price. Value for money, but quality food. And that has always and still remains our mainstay. So in that, we obviously spent time entering the Great Taste Awards and the Irish Quality Food Awards. And we did okay. We have 14 of our product lines now that actually have award or are award winning, and that they range from our uh, Irish marmalade with whiskey, Irish whiskey, to our yellow man, our dark chocolate yellow man, uh, right through to um, our non-alcoholic hot toddy, which is the product that Harrods seem to love. Um, our cinnamon apple juices. Um, yes, there's quite a few that we have managed to get through the process. And I'd say there's maybe a few listeners raising their eyebrows at a non-alcoholic hot toddy. How do you make that? <laughs> it's hugely popular, actually. Uh, we now have a lot of customers coming specifically for it. It is an apple juice. It's based with apple juice. And then we have a number of spices we add to it. Um, so it's lovely heated. You just take a glass and heat it up for less than a minute in the microwave if you want and uh, it makes a lovely winter drink, evening drink um, you can add a little bit of whiskey or brandy is particularly nice with it um, and many of our customers do I believe <laughs> but we just give the, it's an apple juice based In addition then to products like the jams and chutneys and the hot toddy, you do a lot of fresh products as well in terms of meats and breads Yes, that was really uh, dictated by here, by moving into the retail side. So we want our store to be, I mean, we are the first food hall, tea house and brew bar in Belfast. We are unique in that respect. Um, so we wanted to have a daily offering for our customers um, that they would come in on a daily basis and there were things here that they would want to buy. So hence... We uh, work very closely with a local, um, we have all of our meats come from Northern Ireland, we cure them and smoke them with a local producer to produce our hams and bacons. And the interesting thing of what we've done is in Belfast, everything we serve in our tea house, you can buy in the food hall. So we use all the produce in our service side that we also sell out in retail. And that again is part and parcel of our objective, that we want people to be able to enjoy it, and if they like it, they can buy it and take it home. You have the premises here, you have the development site down in Balamoni, so when do you get time then to go out and about to search out new products? Well, I suppose the first year, 18 months, is really what has instigated this. The products that you see today are really the first 18 months of our work. We're very aware that we want to add to our lines. Uh, we will, well, we will go through a process after Christmas is over, where we will be inviting local producers to come in and talk to us about what they can do, uh, potentially, and then we'll want to go out and about. We just, ha we don't at the moment. We the la in the last year we haven't had the time. Uh, but we had enough product lines to get us to this point. We're very aware that we want to add to those 
uh, and we want to just get more of our message out about what we're doing about local food. You have the online business then, so coming up to Christmas there's hampers and different options there for people. Uh, this week in Balamoney we are putting out 350 hampers uh, and that's ongoing as we speak. Um, so and that's orders that are already in so this time of the year and the hamper side of our business is hugely important it is pretty much a Christmas market um, although we are getting more and more people now looking at birthday presents um, a lot of uh, a lot of presents for mother-in-laws and father-in-laws and fathers and I mean food is just you know food is something everybody likes nice food and it's presented nicely and so our hampers are popular. Whenever you look around the store here and you see such an array of wonderful products, if you had to pinpoint three that are your favourite, what three would they be? That's a difficult one. Um, I have to say for me, uh, well when I wake up in the morning and I have my toast, I want my marmalade with Irish whiskey. That sets me up for the day. So for me, I really like that product. Um, before I go to bed at night, I probably then have a glass of our hot toddy, um, sometimes with the whiskey, and that for me is another sort of, so that's my start of my end to my day. So certainly for me those two, I really like our hams and bacons, and I would cook a lot with those. Um, the other thing that we do, that is becoming more and more popular is our rapeseed oil and our flavoured rapeseed oils. I'm working at the minute on a flavour, don't want to say too much, but I'm ha I hope to have it in for Christmas. I'm looking at um, a sweet version of a rapeseed oil and we're nearly there um, and it's going to be one of my real products. Um, we will add fruit into the rapeseed oil and I think that's going to be a real winner. Actually, Sounds very interesting. Yes. And you said there about having your cup of tea in the morning, you actually do tea and coffee also. Yes, we all of our teas are blended, obviously they're not grown in Belfast but they're all blended in Belfast. Um, we do a Belfast blend as well and I know a few people maybe do that. We like to think we have sort of got that mix. Our Belfast blend is quite a light black tea and it's my favourite tea of all time because I am a black tea drinker. Um, but we do all sorts, we do rubus and we do peppermint and we sort of satisfy all things. Coffee, we are getting known for our coffee. In the tea house we only do filter brew bar coffee and we're getting known for that and we have some really regular customers. We have people who might have previously had a cappuccino or a latte, they have our filtered coffee and they're sold. Um, we can do it at different strengths to meet requirements whether people like it weak or medium or strong but we grind all the beans in-house and we serve it fresh and it really is a winner. I'll have to go and have a cup of that now. It has been lovely to talk to you. If listeners want to, to see more of your products, they can go online to your website. Go online, www.thegoodfoodandwinecompany.co.uk. Um, certainly go there. Our hamper service goes all over Europe at Christmas. Um, and certainly if you're in Belfast, we'd love to see you into the store um, because it also just makes it all real I think when you come in and see it but certainly online is a big part of what we do. Michelle lovely to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard earlier from Tom Burgess from Gladden Cheese about his award-winning cheese. And just before the break, I was talking to Michelle Lestis at the Good Food and Wine Company in Belfast. Definitely one to bear in mind when it's time to do the Christmas shopping. Never fear if you've missed some of the shows, it will be up on the Best 
Possible Taste podcast later in the week, along with all the previous shows. And you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And still to come tonight, Ken Mayor foodie Karen Coakley has a delicious recipe to share with us. So don't forget to get your pen and paper ready to write the details down. But before that, as chance would have it, my next guest is also Northern Irish. Trish Dezean grew up in Northern Ireland but has lived in France since the 1980s. She's published a number of books and her latest one is called Home, Recipes from Ireland and she's on the phone now to tell us a bit about it. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Trish, congratulations on your latest book, Home Recipes from Ireland. It really is a beautiful book. Thank you. No, I'm very, very pleased with the, with the wonderful printing job that my publishers, Hachette Cuisine, have done. Uh, it's, it's really beautiful. They've done Deji Rooney's photography justice, I think, and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> now, what I loved about it whenever I opened it up, at the start of it, it's nearly like a mini-biography, and perhaps it resonates more with me because I grew up not a million miles from where you grew up. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know how much one should write in an introduction, and originally I'd wanted uh, you know, small pieces throughout the book, and I thought, no, I'll just put it all together, and then if anybody you know, wants to dip in and out, they can spend a little bit of time reading that. Um, but I thought it was very important to really set the scene of of what the food... I mean, there wasn't even a food scene when I was growing up. You, you sound silly if you said something like food scene or, you know, foodies. They hadn't really invaded by that, that you know, that, at that stage. Um, but I wanted to, especially for Northern Ireland, you know, just say how far we'd come yet uh, flag up that the, 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 the sort of the grains of... of, of the revo- today's revolution are you know we're always there and have always been there because we're so close to the land and so um, careful about the, the way things taste. Anyway, people ar- around me always were. You kind of came to food a bit later on in life, insofar as you didn't go away to study food. You actually studied languages. Yes, no, I've never studied food. I've, I think I've had two cookery lessons, three cookery lessons in my life, and. Yeah, I. Yeah, but but you know, when I say I came to food, obviously, it's been an important part of my life, as is you know, air, the air we breathe. So it's it, you know, it's been a natural, uh, a natural part of part of life, and that's the way I like to see it. Obviously, that was heightened when I went to France because it's it's it's, it's much more than sustenance and and um, and fuel in France. It's certainly uh, part of culture and part of. Um, really seen as an art form, gastronomy. So it's woven through society and woven through culture and and, and the regions, of course, is a very strong regionalization of, of food in, in France. So it was a different, um, a more intense uh, relationship and approach to food when I when I went there. But I suppose before that, it was, you know, I, what was important in my family was the, were the get-togethers and they didn't happen that often. Um, and my parents, as I said, were very keen on making sure things were properly cooked and tasted right and, and looked good. So, you know, that was something that was always important to us growing up. And the gathering of people around the table which wasn't always, as I said, wasn't always easy. It was a very, um, you know, it was a kind of loaded thing uh, as, as as I was growing up in Northern Ireland. And that's something I recognised a lot in France, where the gathering itself and the what goes on when, when families and friends uh, all share meals and share food around the table and the conversation and the actual occasion itself makes the food almost you know, fade into the background um, was um, was something that I really loved and recognised when I was in France. So that's one similarity between the, the culture here and the culture in France but in terms of then producers and artisan produce and markets do you feel that whenever you first went to France, like, it was a completely different world to Ireland? However, now they're they're much closer to one another. The way that we see this whole movement and return to farmers' markets. I think in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, particularly, we tend to look outside the country for you know validation, comparison, and I think we're very quick to look to Italy or France or even China and, and look at other food cultures and say, hey, look at us, you know, we're, we're catching up. And I, I, mean, I don't think that's the right route to take. I think that our own culture is a very sure and precious thing and, you know, can be 
um, celebrated in, in, in a very different way. I think, I think now that the pride and the taste again and the care in how food is produced and livelihoods and the way farmers you know, can, can, can make a living, can survive actually for a lot of them, um, you know, and, and a lot of global issues to deal with, um, deal with climate change and deal with industrialization of food production. Uh, I think that you know, those issues are bringing our two cultures together in a way because we're all very conscious of all of those things now. But again, the sort of you know, root culture in food is so different between Ireland and France, just coming from a completely different way that, that we, you know, we, can't, we shouldn't really measure ourselves up to that. We don't need to. And, uh, and farmers markets specifically, I mean, in France, you have marché paysans in, in small villages or small towns uh, where, they again, they're very proud of their regional produce. So they would be, um, you know, much more celebrated. Uh, but you have popular markets, so markets where people go to buy their, their, you know, their everyday food, their weekly shop. They will do it at a market. And I find that the markets that we have in Ireland and Northern Ireland are much more... Uh, for sort of special occasions, they're almost a little bit of a day out. You know, there's a lot of condiments. It's, we're not, we don't use our markets in the same way as the French would. Um, and I would, I would absolutely love to see, um, you know, uh, uh, more uh, ways and more places where people can have a more varied choice in the type of food that they can buy and discover. As well, it's a good thing about farmers markets that you actually see the people who are behind what the produce is, than just supermarkets, because for the moment certainly in Northern Ireland and across Ireland, it's still the supermarkets who reign supreme um, for the way people shop every week. For the book then, you travelled extensively around Ireland and you must have met a lot of the producers when you were out and about. Yes, we did. Uh, I, I rented uh, four cottages in different parts of the country and we so we stayed with a the photographer there, with Deidre there for a week and shopped and cooked and, and, and met various people. I mean, we met them at markets the way... I, you know the way people who are shopping for food, the way um, you know ordinary consumers in a, in a way might shop for food at a farmers market. I didn't, I didn't do too much seeking out of particular producers. I mean, there are a few who are highlighted in the book, and who are photographed in the book. Um, for example, Brachgammon Farm up in on, in Ballycastle in, in County Antrim, because of uh, the way that they farm and how emblematic they are of the new sort of spirit in, in farming, sustainable farming all all across Ireland. Um, so I was still, you know, I was interested in the in in the stage of you know where anybody, any sort of normal home cook, you know, not necessarily somebody who's particularly passionate or obsessed with food might find um, those those products. Uh, and so, yes, we saw them. Yeah, we saw them at the markets, and and as I say, photographed a few of them, and saw and, and and listened to how they produced their fantastic ingredients. I mean, some of it is just spectacularly good. I mean, coming from France again, where the taste of um, of good artisan artisanal food is uh, is important. Really, that um, that uh, that was a great surprise to see how how wonderful it all tasted. Whenever you look at the book, I my initial impression would be that it's it's very high end, very challenging recipes that are in it. But it actually says at the beginning that they're aimed at beginner cooks or lazy ones. Well, that's a bit of a gamble because it you're right. It looks like quite a luxurious book. It's very coffee table ish. It is, yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know if I've pulled that off. But it was very important to me not to change the style of the recipes that I've put in all my other books. And I wanted them all to be, you know, short order with ingredients that were easily found. I also wanted to sort of celebrate the plainness of of a lot of our. Um, you know, usual food, the stuff that people can find everywhere. I didn't want it to be too fancy or ingredients would be difficult to go and seek out. And, you know, that includes farmer's markets because some of our wonderful produce that you, you know, that gets a lot of attention uh, is not readily available all over Ireland. So I was, con- I was conscious and perhaps it won't, it, it, it won't work because it does look quite a luxurious, like quite a luxurious, but, but really, you know, my recipes in there are for very, very basic technical level. Uh, and I really hope when I was saying this to somebody earlier and they were quite shocked, you know, but, but, but cookbook authors, we are always sort of braced <laughs> when, we, when we start a book um, 
to to realize that perhaps and this is this is what we're told that perhaps only one or two recipes from the book will might ever make their way into somebody's cooking repertoire long term and that's a terrible thing to to have to integrate when you're writing an entire book of of recipes but um but I kept that in mind and I thought well you know if I, if I, I want to put recipes in there that are that are that are Irish that are slightly modern that are maybe not uh, you know, I'm not. And there's, a, there's a line in there: no pistachios or pomegranates were harmed. You know, I didn't want anything that was from different cultures really in there. So there are no lemons, no vanilla, no garlic. And I thought, well, that um, you know, the plainness of that might mean uh, that people will actually cook them, will actually use them. Because you know, I've spent when I was filming doorstep food uh, with BBC Northern Ireland, I got a real insight into how most people cook. Still, and you know, it's not the way <laughs> you see on on TV. You know, they might do that for for a special occasion. Um, they might you know do something special out of out of a out of a lovely modern cookbook. But you know, on the whole, people are still um, cooking and eating in a in a very very simple way. So so that was that was what I was after in in the plainness of those recipes. And then I thought, well, to offset that and to not just have a book full of oats and potatoes and bacon. Uh, I wanted to bring in then the chefs and their genius, really, and also the presentation of their food. And I quite like, actually, the contrast that runs through the book between their very, you know, their works of art, some of them are just absolutely beautiful. Um, I like the contrast between the plain home-cooked stuff and, the, and then their real uh, creations. And that was quite difficult as well, stylistically. We, I mean, when we were travelling around Ireland, uh, we had to have the same props and the same backgrounds, uh, so you know the sort of art direction of the book was something we had to think about very carefully before we started off, which is another reason why everything is all quite plain and simple. We were shooting recipes in all sorts of different locations and um, with a lot, you know, in a lot of different restaurants and all across Ireland over, well, it was over a space of like three or four months and, and about five or six weeks. I'm glad now you mentioned the the TV programme, which is going to be on BBC Northern Ireland. It's Trish Dezean's Doorstep Food, mm-hmm. and it's a three-part show, and it's very much about eating local. How long did it take to film that show? Uh, I think it was about three weeks, um, and that was great fun. I mean, it's a real fun show. It's a real celebration of, of Northern Ireland's uh, produce and Northern Ireland's, uh, the beginnings of Northern Ireland's food re- revolution. But it's also... Uh, it was a bit of fun because we, I, we, I followed uh, three families and gave them a challenge of a week uh, where they had to only shop and eat and cook local food. And that, a little bit like in the book, meant you know, no lemons, no vanilla, no garlic, no spices, nothing that, hadn't, nothing that, that, that was produced outside Northern Ireland or grown outside Northern Ireland. So, but three very different, uh, very different families, all with kids. You know, one... Uh, the, the, they only ever shopped in Asda, and that's online in Asda. Uh, another, they were there was a, a personal trainer and um, extremely body conscious, uh, you know what they say, health conscious about their food. And then a very pretty sophisticated foodie uh, couple from Belfast. So you know, very different approaches to food, and they they had to change things about the way they shopped and cooked but in different ways and it was great fun and very very interesting again to sort of dive into people's cupboards and people's kitchens well i I look forward to tuning into that because it sounds really interesting in the meantime we have your lovely book here to enjoy and you're hopefully going to be in limerick before christmas to do some book signings and no doubt in other parts of ireland i hope so i hope so we're looking into planning that at the moment um so hopefully soon i'll be over there yes Okay, well, you'll keep us posted about that and I can give it a shout out here in the show. And I just have to tell you before you go, page 297, mm-hmm. 15s, <laughs> my favourite tray bag of comeback. all time. And I'm on a mission to introduce the people of Newcastle West to them because this chance would have it. They had a bag sale at my daughter's school a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. She's just in junior infants, so this was my first introduction to uh, a bag sale at a school for many years. So I had said to my husband, I have to make 15s. Well, do you know, the way to do it is to, is to make 15 truffles, is to actually roll them into very small balls. That's exactly what I did. A lot I of did. sugar in there. <laughs> and we know 
these days. <laughs> and then people think, they say, oh, it's just energy balls. You go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And uh, my husband made a little sign and everything for them. 15s Northern Irish tray bags. <laughs> Great. So um, I'll make some of those whenever you're up in Limerick. Lovely. Trish, great to talk to you this evening and best of luck. Congratulations with the new book. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, it was lovely to talk to cookbook author and food writer Trish Gizian about her new book, Home, Recipes from Ireland. I picked up my copy in the independent bookshop in Newcastle West, County Limerick, and it really is a beauty. Earlier in the show, I was on the phone to award-winning cheesemaker Tom Burgess. And when I was out and about on my travels, I met Michelle Lestis at the Good Food and Wine Company in Belfast. And as I said before, you can listen to those interviews again when tonight's show in its entirety goes up on the Best Possible Taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com. And I'll be posting the show there later on in the week. Time now to move from talking about a cookbook to hearing an actual recipe, not from Trish Dezane's book, however, from a very competent and accomplished cook, namely Kenmare Foodie. Karen Coakley. She joins us on the phone now and she has a recipe for shashuska, shakucha. Let's just ask Karen. Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karen, you're welcome to the programme this evening. Thanks for having me, Sharon. You have a recipe that I don't think I can pronounce what the dish is, so I'm going to let you do that. Yeah, I think we've tried this one in the past. It's called shashuka. Now, I think um, there is like different spellings. Obviously, it's an Arabic dish or it's like a Middle Eastern dish. So, you know, you might get thrown up the, the original. But anyway, with me, I go with shashuka. And where I came upon this was a few years ago, somebody introduced me to Yotam Ottolenghi. I think I speak about him an awful lot and I've actually written about him on my blog. But basically, himself and Sami Tamimi, they wrote um, Jerusalem, which is a book based on the cuisine of Jerusalem. And it's just been the most fantastic experience for my husband and I. He's always loved Lebanese food, Middle Eastern food. Um, and for me, it's like really brought me into it. Um, earlier on this year, I know you know that I've run a marathon this year. So come January this year, we decided to go on a healthy eating and, you know, get fit lifestyle. And I found Middle Eastern cooking was a great way for me to do that, to lose weight while I was eating things that were very healthy, very tasty. It's just a style of cooking, the flavours, everything they do is really good. I mean, if you think of couscous and what you can do with these whole grain couscous with your, your kebabs or your koftas or whatever. Um, but anyway, so we managed to lose a lot of weight cooking things out of that book. And another book called um, Plenty, that's his next book. And then Sabrina Gayor, she's got a book called Persiana. There would be three books if you're interested in getting into, you know, Lebanese cooking, Middle Eastern cooking, um, healthier cooking. There'll be three books that I would say they're just fantastic and you can't go wrong. Odalengi was at Ballymaloo Lit Fest last year and you went along to that. Did you get a chance to meet him when you were there? I did and I got my photograph taken with him and it was just the most amazing day because we went into the big shed and I wasn't inside the big shed five minutes. Like He is my food hero. It was a friend of mine actually got me the ticket and I was in the, in the the door of the big shed five minutes and he was there and he's just the most amazing person with the most amazing presence. So my friends knew how obsessed with him I was so they called him over and they said, would you mind taking a photograph taken? And a pure gentleman, you know, there was no bother, there was no, he stood and he smiled and just lovely. So then I went to his demo and like that, I was sitting in the front row of his demo lined up with like blogger friends and I kept looking at him going, you're not behind the TV screen, you're actually in front of me. So that was a fantastic experience all got to line up and eat his food afterwards and just an amazing man and Sammy Tanini was with him um, and they have a restaurant in London together called Nobi it's on my list of places to get to and they actually have a cookbook out at the moment it's brand out from the last two weeks Nopi. but the two of them together were just an amazing they were like what's it what's it um, Darina Allen she obviously was there hosting the demo and she said they were like a two-ring circus. They were just absolutely brilliant but the passion for food and the passion for what they do and where they come from was just infectious. So that brings me back to the shashuka. Um, I came, I found it in, in his book. Now, what I have done is I've adapted and I've created my own recipes and played around with it because it's so versatile. Um, it's taught that it originated um, in Tunisia. Um, it's an Arabic dish of eggs, poached in tomatoes with spices, onions and chili. 
it's very popular in like Israeli cuisine, Egyptian, Algerian and Moroccan cuisine. And as far as I know, it stretches as far across to Spain, like there's versions of it in Spain where they add in chorizo. So that's what I do. I add chorizo into mine, but I use the Lebanese spices. Now, we have this for brunch. It's like a healthy brunch. But also, if you stick with something quick in the evening, you know, it's the perfect evening. So we'd often have it for dinner or supper, myself and my husband, and I would do sauté potatoes with it. Or if you've potatoes left over from the night before, make some potato cakes and do your shashuka with it. And you have a really healthy, nutritious, tasty tea. So basically what you do is you get an onion, two cloves of garlic, you chop those and you heat some oil in your pan and you just sweat those off inside in the oil. Then you add some smoked chorizo. The one I use would be gubbing because that's a West Cork chorizo. It's really well made, gives a lovely smoky flavour. So I would add that in. Stir that around for about a minute or so, just the chorizo will release all of its oils. And then I'll add in about five or six fresh chopped tomatoes. I don't use canned tomatoes in this because I just like the freshness of the fresh tomatoes. But if you are stuck and if you want to make it even faster, open a can of tomatoes and throw it in. So then what I will do is I'll add two two teaspoons of Lebanese baharat. That's a Lebanese spice mix that I get in my local health food shop here. So you should be able to get that anywhere. Um, And then some chili powder and some smoked uh, paprika. So I let all that cook for maybe five or ten minutes, but it reduces down to a nice jammy consistency, like a nice sauce. And then what you do is you make four wells in that inside in the frying pan, and you drop an egg into each one of the wells, and you let that poach, let the eggs poach. Now, it helps to cover the pan, because the eggs will actually kind of cook quickly underneath, and maybe not so quick on top. So if you put, like, if, if you don't have a saucepan lid wide enough to cover the saucepan, then just put, like, a baking tin over it, stuff right off, and use the roasting dish over it to cover that and let it cook and then serve it with just some sprinkly, um, sprinkly, some fresh parsley chopped and sprinkled over it. And it is absolutely gorgeous. Do you take it over to the table in the pan like that and, and I take it dish it table. out then? Yeah, I have a lovely wooden chopping board that I bought at the market here in Khmer. And I literally put the frying pan on the chopping board and take it to the table and we all just dig in. It's absolutely fabulous. Now what you can do, I use chorizo in mine, but you could do feta cheese, crumble some feta cheese into it, mint, or feta cheese and oregano. You could put olives and artichokes. I read somewhere that artichokes and I think green beans are often very common in it. Or I think what would be lovely is if you had roast lamb left over, let's say on a Sunday, if you do roast lamb and you've got some roast lamb left over. I just have this notion in my head, I haven't done it yet. But if you were to take the remaining lamb off the bone and finely chop that or shred it and add it into the, into the tomato sauce and then put your eggs in, it's just so versatile. The consistency of the eggs then whenever it's cooked, are they more like a fried egg than are they more robust they're like a poached of, egg? They're more robust. I mean, I, I, for me, when I poach eggs, I have them quite soft. Because of the way these are cooked with the heat coming up from underneath, I find that they'll be a little bit more cooked on the bottom and softer on top, the yolk. But... Um, Maybe I need to turn the heat down a little bit, but they would be much more. They would be more robust. They'd be kind of in between a poached and a fried, if that makes sense. And I see. I'm wondering then as well about putting it into the oven instead of of putting the lid on the frying pan. Oh, if you had I'd it. be afraid that the I would be just be afraid that the eggs would that they'd actually just go too hard. Okay. If you put it in the oven. You like them but nice and runny. I like them runny, um, but it's just such it's such a fantastic versatile dish, and it can be it could be breakfast, it could be lunch, it could be dinner, it could be whatever you want to be. And there's so many ways that you can take it. There's so many things that you can do, and like I mean, you know, you can have you can add harissa. I use chili powder here, but there's a beautiful thing called rose harissa. So you know, harissa is a chili paste, but if you get rose harissa, it's a chili paste paste with rose petals through it, and that has the most fantastic flavour. You can use cu- cu- cumin, cumin. <laughs> ground coriander, any of those spices that you want to do, you can really get adventurous with it and see what works. I just use the Lebanese barat because that's a seven spice Lebanese mix that's already made up and it's handy and it's quick and it just gives a lovely flavour. Sumac as well. You could sprinkle some sumac over it before you serve it. It sounds delicious now and because it is a tomato sauce that obviously keeps it very low fat. It does and yeah, that's it is very low fat and like that I said, you know, just when we were trying to lose weight at the start of the year, these are the kind of recipes that I turned to. I'm a devil for, for brunch and I'm a devil for pancakes with bacon and maple syrup and mascarpone cheese and all of that kind of stuff. And I kind of thought, okay, girl, that has to stop. But I still wanted to have brunch. And I know for Vincent, he was going off cycling because he was training for half Ironman. So he would love his brunch. So he'd come in maybe 11 or half 11. 
on a Sunday morning and I cook that and, you know, we're getting protein from the eggs. It is low fat because it's just tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, a little bit of oil, you know, onion and garlic. And that's it. Chorizo, okay, but like, I mean, you can let that out if you want to. If people want to get all the details of that, if they just didn't get time to write it down there, it's up in your blog? It's on my blog, kinmarefoodies.com. And I'll also be posting the recipe to my Facebook page, Kinmare Foodies, and Twitter, at Kinmare Foodies. And I'm sure you have some oh, lovely photographs oh, of it on Instagram. Instagram. I do, yeah. I'm very active on Instagram. I love Instagram. So, yeah, it's, um, it's up there as well. It will be going up there later. Fantastic. Karen, thanks so much for sharing it with Karen, us tonight. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Lovely to talk to Karen as always and that sounds like a great recipe. Definitely one to try at home. We look forward to her return in the coming weeks with another delicious recipe. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Before we go tonight, I've time to tell you about a couple of upcoming events. I mentioned last week Longville House in County Cork in Mallow, just outside Mallow in County Cork. They have a long table game dinner this Friday evening. That's Friday the 13th. Hopefully you're you're not superstitious. And then next week on Thursday the 19th of November, they're hosting a Christmas girls night out and shopping experience. Visit longvillehouse.ie for further details and information how to book. Sid Sheehan from Nourish by Nature was here a couple of weeks ago telling us about his upcoming courses in Listowel County Kerry. Paleo, vegetarian and tapas were all on the schedule, so be sure to check out nourishbynature.ie. Staying in County Kerry, Just Cooking is offering classes. One of them is One Pot slash Slow Cooker. There is easy Christmas dinners and lots more. Log on to justcooking.ie for details. Hook and Ladder Cookery School operates in Limerick and Waterford and they have guilt-free baking, fermentation and gourmet pizza making amongst many other demos and courses. And if you visit hookandladder.ie you'll get all the details there including prices, times, dates etc. If you have an event coming up that you'd like me to give a mention to on the show, please do drop me a line, s.noonan at live.ie, and I'll be only too delighted to give it a shout out here on the best possible taste. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. And that sadly brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks so much for joining me. And of course, as always, huge thank you to all of tonight's guests, Tom Burgess, Michelle Lestis, Trish Dezean and Karen Coakley. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. I'll be back at the same time next week when wine guru Ron Forrestal is due in the studio and I'll also be talking to three star Michelin chef Claire Smith. So until then, Slauncha, because Ron's coming next week and as always, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!